Hi, I'm Bran, and I love Hallmark movies. I'm Dan, and I despise Hallmark movies. And I'm Stacy, and I direct Hallmark movies. And this is the, the Deck the Hallmark, Hallmark podcast. podcast. Deck the Hallmark, it's his podcast. Brandon and friends host this podcast. We hope you like this jolly podcast. Oh, wow. Boy. Hello, everybody. Oh, Welcome back. Exciting day today. This is Brand. exciting. And right. I we have not had the opportunity to interview many directors. Ron I Oliver think Ron Oliver is maybe it. Maybe it. Yeah. I believe Sir Ron I'm Oliver. I'm sorry. Yes, yes, you are correct, we sir. Would, oh, that's going to get us in so much yeah, trouble. He's, he's he, gonna, yeah. yeah. The gate. He's yeah. gonna be mad. He's gonna be mad when we, when he finds out that we didn't say the sir in front of him. So this is pretty exciting, is. and uh, we're excited to talk about uh, to Stacy about Round and Around, which she directed last year, um, and her upcoming movie Crime Time. Uh, we're gonna talk about all of that and so much more. We love to start off any interview that we do, though, finding out about what you were like uh, as a kid and kind of what got you interested in uh, film as a kid. So. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? And then maybe a, a seminal moment. And we're of, jumping right in. This is Stacy in Harding. Yes. We didn't even say her oh full name. Oh my gosh. Name. This is Stacy in Harding. What are you doing? I know. You just ate lunch. We normally yeah, don't know. do this. I know. And I know. Brand is useless after lunch, Stacy. I, I mean, just useless. Like he's a three hour work day max. Um, but thank you for joining us, yes. Stacy in Harding. And we're, we're thrilled to, to talk to you about all the films you've directed. But yes, where'd you grow up? And how did you, you find film as a passion so uh i uh was born in alberta uh, i'm a canadian and uh, moved to british columbia when i was in high school and i just i fell into the drama program i think you know you come into a new school in the middle of your teenage life and the drama kids are the kids that are actually interested in talking to somebody so uh I wound up stage managing theater. High school sat in the theater like festival circuit for a while, which is basically, you know, fighting over a bag of Doritos <laughs> at eleven o'clock at night because you don't make any money and you, and uh, and then I I literally tripped on film like it was one of those things that, um, you know, was really in the early '90s kicking off in Vancouver. We went from having three or four crews where everybody knew each other and then by 2000s there were 20 crews in town and you know now in 2024 like prior to the strike we could have 70 movies going at any time so zero so that industry has just like done this massive shift so when I came into it I was a production assistant I held the stop and slow paddles I swept up the cigarette butts I held parking for the trucks to come in at in the morning with homeless guys peeing on the side of my Honda Civic with 300,000 Ks on it and a bumper tied on, you know, with a coat hanger. Like, really, um, Man. <laughs> yeah, a Honda like Civic it. with 300,000 miles and a bumper tied on with a coat hanger. That's I, right. Yeah, that's how we do. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Doritos should sponsor it's, you. I mean, should like, you should be the poster child for Doritos. Like that person yeah. eats Doritos. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Uh, right. Obviously. <laughs> um, 
So we, we, we glossed over a lot real quick and I, I, I want to, yeah. you are in stage managing and you love it. You love it enough to basically starve, to get to do it for a living. Did you go to any yeah. other, cause you hear all these stories about directors, typically actors that we have on the show. It's, it's the same kind of arc, which is, you know, I, I love being in plays. I love the attention, what have you. I went to some sort of school. It didn't work out or it did work out. And then I did auditions and then I became an actor. Whereas filmmakers, I seem, I feel like it's a much more eclectic medium, like from a standpoint of I was an actor and then became a director. I was a stage manager and became a director. Did you go to any formal school? Did you at some point go, all right, I want to be a stage manager. I'm going to go to stage managing school or is this just learned experience? So I was a stage manager that became a first assistant director in the film industry. So basically I took that stage manager role and what I discovered is I could do that role where, you know, you're very much in control of the artistic and the, um, you know, execution along with the production side of things, you know, and so I found that stage managing role in the film industry. So that was the shift for me. So I, I ran film crews for 20 years. Wow. Uh, so in 1998, I started on a series, um, a Showtime series called Beggars and Choosers, which was uh, written about the film industry and the business of the film industry. So I did two um, years, you know, 44 episodes of television for Showtime as a first AD. That was my first start. Wow. You know, by the time it, it becoming a director wasn't something that, um, I, it wasn't something that was an easy pathway in Canada. So first of all, you may notice I'm a white female, which, you know, didn't give me, a, you know, it wasn't a sure thing basically in the, in the 90s, which was just what it was, right? right? Like, no, so I was a, a first AD when there was a ha literally a handful of female first ADs in the country, um, which was great. So I come out of technical, the technical side of making television, which I am deeply grateful for every single day when I get to step on the floor and direct, like, I don't know how you do this stuff half the time if you don't have either a wicked team around you or you don't have a really, you know, solid understanding of what it takes to get through the day or get the shot or, or you know, bob and weave because we're on fire yeah, all day long. But Especially movies of the I, week, you know, we got 15 days. I mean, crazy. The movies of the week are super, I think it's really interesting that people don't, a lot of people, I love that you say that because a lot of people don't understand how challenging this format is, right? Like it, it isn't something where the margins in the money making side of our business have really increased, you know? And so in that TV movie world, you have to be so lean. Um, and there is no forgiveness. You have 15 days and whatever it is that's going to happen in that 15 days is what you get. So if you have a snowstorm, an atmospheric river in the last couple of years, if we have, you know, actors that get sick, you know, the, all the stuff that happens where you're just in recovery mode all day long, but also trying to tell a great story, mm. you know, and, and dig out those pieces that, that, um, that technical background, the fact that, I got to do that job for that many years um, has come in handy over and over and over again. So super grateful for that amount of time. But um, I, uh, as an AD, um, CBS hired me when they did the reboot of Charmed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so 
I, uh, I did the pilot episode for Charmed and then uh, was hired to do season one as an AD. And uh, when they asked me to come back for season two, I was like, well, uh, I'm not sure season two is going to work for me. And then uh, they, uh, they offered um, me an opportunity to direct in the season two, um, which... You know, without boring your audience to death, it's like at a certain point in this process, you kind of give up on the directing thing being something that you're going to be able to do, right? Like you find yourself in the place where you're like, I'm grateful to do the job I do. I'm so lucky I work in television. Like who wants to complain about having a job in TV? (laughs) It's, you know, like just don't, um, you know, and and so I was like stupidly grateful to be in the business and for somebody to look at me and go, we're going to give you a shot at doing what it is that you've wanted to do, you know, for the last 20 years uh, was phenomenally exciting for me. So um, I did an episode, directed an episode of season two of Charmed. Uh, and then just as we were coming out of post and um, I was starting to prep my next episode as an AD, the world shut down mm. for COVID. So that was yeah. And a year and a half later, I directed the uh, final episode of Mystery 101. Uh, was an offer that had yeah, come in. Yeah, I Hallmark. saw that on the IMDb, uh, and you know that ended on a cliffhanger, and they're never making another one. So, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> um, just if, like uh, you know, yeah. as someone who's taking all the blame well, yeah, for it that, is her, how do it you? Is her fault. How do you sleep at night, Stacy? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's taken me some time. A lot of white noise, you know, those therapy apps have come in really handy. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. That's so interesting that it's all your fault. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but before we get there, I do yes. want to go back really quickly because you you did so much as an AD um, and then stuff even before that. Uh, there was one that you were especially excited well, about, Dan. I think just looking at the IMDb. those of you listening, first AD, most actors will tell you maybe the most important person on set. Like a lot of people say like the director is great, but the tone is set by the first AD. Like how, yeah, how the right. film is going to run, how, like, how much it's going to be like clockwork, how much leniency is given for takes and for shots and for actors being divas. All that stuff is the first AD. They, they are like the collection funnel for all that so the director can make the decisions. And that's a huge deal. But when you get to work with Jonathan Taylor Thomas as a trainee assistant director on Man of the House, I, I feel like that when you put that on your resume, I think everyone just goes... Uh-huh. You work with JTT, and I think that's the end of it. And oh, yeah. that's your that's your first credit, Stacy. Is Man of the House, Chevy Chase, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, and we, I think we'd all agree. Without JTT, you're not here today. You're not, I think yeah, that's yeah. what Dan's trying yeah. to say. A hundred percent true. That's right. I mean, there was that like a little known actor named Farrah Fawcett in that that movie as well. Farrah but like Fawcett ab- in that movie. Oh, why isn't she on the poster? The poster's just Jonathan <laughs> Taylor Thomas dangling Chevy Chase. We left Farrah Fawcett off the poster. We really oh my did. gosh! Yeah. That's where we've got to now, evidently. Oh, so it's unbelievable. <laughs> yes, I mean JTT was uh, was a pretty phenomenal. <laughs> pretty phenomenal experience. <laughs> it, it really set the tone and the foundation for, for a long, you know, a long career. After <laughs> of course, of course. I'm sure this is a, a hard question to answer, but you, I imagine got to work with uh, a bunch of different directors over the years as uh, AD. 
what was kind of the biggest take or the, or the lesson that you're like, I, I, I use this now all the time or something you learned um, kind of doing that for all those years that you still utilize today in your own directing? I think the interesting thing about like having been that in that first AD role and you did a brilliant job of, of um, describing what that actually is. Um, I got to work with a lot of directors where I was like, that's phenomenal, right? Like Emmy award winning, some Oscar nominated, like, you know, lots of big guys that went on to, you know, you know, do huge series or, or executive massive shows. And it, I think the opportunity of being with such a cross section of directors over the years, like probably 70 wow. plus directors. Um, and some of those, like I've had the opportunity of working with multiple times, which has been great, but I really got to watch what I loved, you know, about how they did their job and what I didn't love. So I think, I think, for me, I had such respect for the directors that came to the floor and they worked. It, it's going to sound super cliche, but they led with kindness. Mm. So they came on the show, they read the script, which oddly enough, some directors <laughs> don't really feel that. Which is great. You know, I'd be like, that's super guys, but what are we going to do with these three pages of the story that no one seems to have <laughs> read? Um, but they came uh, understanding that we're part of a collaborative team, right? Which which we are. Like this is there's there's no singular job in film that that can survive without everybody else, right? As actors, as directors, as ads, as camera operators, like we rely on the collaborative nature of the people around us to problem solve and and to you know, all be more or less in a leadership position for the skills and the point of view that we're bringing to the table in whatever moment we're, we're in, yeah. right? So the directors, particularly in series television, which is where I spent most of my time as, as an AD in US Studio T TV, um, when they came to the floor understanding that they were the new voice in the room that had a really, you know, some phenomenal um, ideas, but that they could kind of bring everybody's level up rather than um, kind of bulldozing their way through the environment as the, the it's my way and that's how we're going to do things. So um, so the, the leading with kindness is something that is super important to me. Like you can speak to the actors that work with me or, you know, anybody that I, especially as a director that I, I work with now and um, we're quick. We always know what we're doing and uh and we work together to problem solve whatever it is but if you come in with attitude i don't want yeah. you on the set <laughs> not in, it in any way shape and or form I, that actually leads me to a question that i have we don't really prep for these interviews because we want to just have it be organic but one thing i've been thinking about yeah. i heard i believe it was an actor say this on a different podcast but basically described that movies in the cinema are a filmmaker's medium like you go and you see their style like if you see like yeah. what Greta Gerwig's done in her three, four movies and, and, and it's different, but you know who's behind the camera or Martin Scorsese with crime movies or what have you. Whereas TV, a writer can put their imprint, like Aaron Sorkin, for instance, can put his imprint on a show. But directors seem to be taken as more facilitators, more carriers of this, like to give it the yeah. professional thematic look that it's supposed to give and to drive the bus, so to speak. And so 
my question is, is that as you've moved from TV to film, where I, I would, I can see that with TV, especially as you move from TV to film, do you have like an urge or in, you know, inclination to go, okay, I want to do this this way because this is how Stacy would do it. Or are you, do you find yourself to be like, you take very seriously being the great facilitator, like the person who is like, I'm going to take this project that is this writer's baby. These actors are great. And I'm going to absolutely ring it for all it's worth in, in the service of the script and the production studio. Does that make sense? Am I crazy yeah. there? No, no, it does. I, I think different, different formats, certainly like when you're in the feature film world, and somebody like Greta Gerwig or any of those like brilliant directors, they have a whole team around them, right? So, and they typically work with the same people. So her vision, her production designer, her director of photography, her like all those things, and they have a team and they have a certain way that they'll approach any show. And they get to really drive that creative vision all the way through, which, I mean, what an unbelievable, like, I'm like, could I just have a 16th day? <laughs> <laughs> but is that something you'd want? Do you want to take something and work six months on it and carve it and craft it? Or do you like the challenge of, I've been given all the pieces. Let me, let me make a cake out of it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, I mean, could, would I enjoy the opportunity of doing, you know, something in a way where I, I actually get the time and the ability to work with people to really create something that, that has like such a mono like tone and vision to it and, and to be able to be creative like that. Absolutely. That, that would be a phenomenal process. And, and um, you know, I would never say no to that. Um, I, I do also love the challenge of making what it is I make, right. Which is this TV movie world of things. So, you know, the next thing is like in television, there's the TV movie, which I come into and I actually get to have a bit of a creative say in a television movie. Mm -hmm. Right. So you get this script, um, that the writers have poured their soul into, and then we have to make it into something that we can produce. Mm -hmm. Right. So then it's time of year amount of daylight we've got, especially when you work, you know, up in Vancouver, where in the wintertime it's yeah. mostly night. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, don't have a lot of stuff right and so we have all these constraints both from a budget time and location perspective that we really got to drill into and so a lot of the time you know most of that prep is spent you know working with the writers and working with the creative teams in order to try to distill the story down in a way that we actually know we can produce it so you know there's that whole side of it that's kind of interesting and you have a little bit more control over stuff but in a you're on fire <laughs> yeah. uh, running through the street most you know um kind of way so that piece of it that problem solving that jumping in there that driving and also like looking at like where where can we put our money into the story in a way where the audience is going to have a creative return on that right like you don't want to watch two people stand in a room and say the words because that's just boring you want to be and experience it and doing it right and so it's like how can we get the most bang for our buck out of the money and time that we have um so there is a creative element i think that directors get to have in a television movie format um that is dramatically different than tv series because mm -hmm. you know your point television series we often become more shot collectors yeah. than we are creative input so um depending on the show depending on the showrunner they may have a very, you know, a lot of them have a very specific idea about how they want their story told. 
how they want it shot, where they like the movement, where they don't like the movement. And then in that world, you essentially, the DP is the person that kind of almost takes over a lot of that, where I would come in with ideas or things or places where I would like movement or motion, but that's something that would be all pre-discussed essentially with the showrunner about you know, how I see certain things and whether or not that fits how they're wanting to cut it. So, you know, there is this interesting thing in television where the challenge becomes, how do I sit in their world, but give them a little bit of something that maybe they didn't know they wanted, yeah. right? You know, introduce something or introduce a, a style or a movement or something somewhere where they have an, where they're able to cut around that. But in the same sense, maybe they look at it and go, oh, like, that's cool. I didn't think about that. You know, and then the other way that television can happen sometimes is is you're you're hired to work on a series in a way where they just say, please come and do your thing. Yeah. Because you want to freshen up or we're looking for, you know, a different tone or a different way of doing stuff. And and so do your thing. Um, if we have a question, we'll ask that question, you know, either out of dailies or off the you know, side of set and otherwise, um, you know knock yourself out so there's all sorts of different ways but it's like you know we do our job and we do our cut and we hand those over to showrunners or executives and stuff and then often you you don't really hear anything after that so you never have an indication of you know if people have loved it if people haven't loved it you know, if it's it's done really well for them, if they're excited or what they liked or what they didn't like, and then you go back and you work for them again and you still don't know. It's it, it's a really interesting, I think actors feel that way too, right? They have passion, they're there, they do these great things, they make these great stories. And then they come in for ADR and they re-record a couple of lines and then they never hear anything again, you know, from anybody on the subject. So it's, uh, it, it's interesting. I'm curious because uh, you worked on so many different projects as AD um, uh, over the years. Were, were there opportunities to direct that just didn't work out? Or what, was it a real fight uh, with, what was it, uh, a Charmed uh, that you got the, the first directing opportunity with? Um, was that like a real fight? Like I, I'm just, Maybe you just I like can't, being an AD. Or just well, yeah. did you get to the point where you're like, I just can't. I. I either have to be a director now or it's just never going to happen. Like what was that journey actually like? Were you really trying to become the director and it just never happened or were there opportunities just kind of didn't, uh, wasn't the right time. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. Um, on, on the very first series I did, I worked with, uh, Richard J. Lewis, who is, um, I have a real soft spot for Richard. He's just a lovely human. And he, he saw, he used to hand me sections of our scripts, right? So that was the first series that I had done as a first AD, you know, full series. Um, and he would hand me a scene or, a, you know, a section. And he's like, what would you do with this? Mm. And so he made that conversation approachable for me in a way that, you know, hadn't really been before. Because one, there wasn't a lot of directors that were working that were Canadian at that point. Most of the shows that I did over those years were servicing US-based DGA directors. So having a Canadian just kind of wasn't a thing. Um, and I think at that point, when we got out of that series, the only female director that I had worked with in the first 10 years of my career was Joanna Kearns. And Joanna came in to do a couple episodes on that particular show. Um, but I never, 
seen a, a female director on the floor wow. at that point in time. So it, it just, it just didn't exist in the same way. Like, right. So like some actors who had, you know, um, an eye for directing studios were starting to support a little bit, but it was more like keep them happy. So they also do all these other shows that we want them to do within the network. Right. And that was kind of the way that that came forward. And also, you know, in true fashion of a lot of industries, there was some nepotism components, you know, that, that also at, at that time you'd see people come in, you know, sort of as the, early 2000s, um, you know, a couple people came through, but um, I loved it. I I thought it was super fun. I love taking the technical side of things and try to figure out how to tell the story, right? Because what lenses we have, if the camera's moving, if the camera's not moving, like how they're lit, what side we're shooting from, like all of these technical things go into how that story is being told right and if we do everything around the actor in a brilliant way we're lending and we're helping to facilitate what their performance is going to be your how you're connecting with what you're watching is really in you know is really informed by everything that's around them at the same time and that always fascinated me you know and that was something i think as a first ad i got to do a lot of because i got to help build this world that was around the actors even though i didn't get to you know inform the performance, I got to inform everything that was around it, which was a terrific thing. Um, over the years, as an AD, I, I continued to have the conversation with different executives and stuff that I was working with, right? Like, and I, in the nineties, there was a lot of opportunity to direct a lot of second units because at that point in time, the directors were like, you know, I, I don't care, go and do the car sliding sideways, go and get the, you know, shooting out the, the, taillights like they could not have cared less about those units and so I think as first ADs we got to do a lot of that kind of stuff that sort of went away into the 2000s with full second units and them directing their own stuff and um, so to answer your question um, I often asked to see if there was opportunities um, I got to the point in my career where I, I viewed what I was the access that I was going to have was going to be by supporting the directors I was working with in the very best way I could, right? And then that was going to be how ultimately my career went and I was gonna to have to be okay with that. Um, and so the support from the production team of Charmed was um, critical because being a director is an invitation, mm -hmm. right? You don't, you, no job lineup you can go and, um, you know, asked to be a director. I mean, there's lots of schools you can go to and programs you can come out of and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, all of these stories, all of these directors, that's a by invitation position. So the showrunner on season one and the network had been on the floor enough to believe that I had a skill set because if they didn't believe that, they would never have given me the opportunity in season two, right? Like to put somebody in on those shows, that's a big budget commitment. That's a big network and production commitment to, to give somebody an opportunity like that. So they saw that they, you know, they felt that it was worth making that investment in, in what I was doing. And, um, and I felt um, stupidly lucky to be able to do that, right? Like, um, So for it to have become a career, I think like 
I, I'm not sure how many credits I have now, but I've been working pretty solidly as a director the last almost three years. Um, and I, every morning when my feet hit the floor, I am stupidly grateful to have the opportunity to go to work and do what I do. Um, and I don't, I always am hyper prepared. Um, and I really believe that it's my job to, you know, give everybody the opportunity of, of having a really great day and, and making the very best product we can. And, um, and it feels like it's going to stick now, which is yeah. kind of great. Well, I think you've <laughs> definitely found a career. There's so much there that I, I have questions on, but I, the invite only ah. thing, I think immediately, do, I mean, along with everything else that goes into fighting for equality in occupational opportunity, do you think the yeah. idea of invite only an invite only job like director, I mean, what percent of that thing where directorial, it, there's a lot of directorial boys clubs out there. And it's like, we've got talented females that can direct people that know what they're doing, that have the experience, like that maybe, maybe there's been a first AD for 15 years who hasn't been noticed. Like I guarantee yeah. you there, there has been right. That, that oh, isn't getting the invite. Like what, what could possibly like, what are active steps like, or, or what would you have like in your experience, look back and go, if this had been in place, it would have been uh, beneficial for the opportunity for everyone that wants to be a director to be one. Mm -hmm. um, so there are a lot of people out there that are in a lot of different jobs and roles that are very, very capable of doing, you know, the step up or the head of their department or any of those things. And, and, you know, what helps one person get to the end of, or to their goals versus another, like often, I think it's luck, right? Like for me, um, I, uh, I, I, so there's a lot of different threads to what yeah, you Yeah, it's a, it's said. a loaded question. I realized when I asked it, but when you said invite only, I couldn't not ask it cause I'm fascinated. <laughs> I get it. I get it. It's like, to me, I think the only way that I can really help um, move the, the conversation forward about opportunity is by showing up every day and, and working um, like a dog and um, having a solid plan and, and really viewing my leadership position. Like I view like this is a leadership position, right? And when I am on, when you are on one of my sets, you know, you're on one of my sets, right? It's a heavily directive, very inclusive, you know, um, environment, but where we're hyper-professional and we got a million things to accomplish and everybody shows up and does their, does their damnedest, right? But by me walking the walk every day, I, I view that that's the best way to, to move the conversation forward of people who have a skill set getting an opportunity to step up. Because I think, I think when you are what you want to see in the world, and that is like, you know, <laughs> a cliche and a t-shirt and a sign that you get, you know, at a home store and you stick on your back wall. But that is the best way that I can affect change in the direction that I want to go. And that was no different, like stepping into the first AD role in 1998, where I was the only woman at a boardroom table of 30 Sheesh. men, aside from me you know, hair or makeup. And the hazing was fantastic. Um, 
you know, but also the camaraderie was also amazing at that time, right? Like I had people that were incredible friends and that culture just over the years has shifted and changed, mm -hmm. right? So culturally, I think that, you know, the ability to have, um, you know, women and more diversity in the workplace when it comes to those leadership positions, like that is a different conversation now than it was in the 90s in all industry, right? And in media and in all of those kinds of things. So I think the best way to move that conversation forward is by showing up and, and doing the very best you can do every single day you get an opportunity to Absolutely. do it, right? Because people that see success, the more people that come in and they're like, oh, you're a professional, right? It's like, you know, having the... I, I work with people that don't, you know, sometimes understand my background and I technically have a lot of knowledge when it comes to the gear and equipment and stuff that we're using. So when I say, you know, undersling the camera, put it at 50 mil and put it in the corner, I literally mean <laughs> undersling the camera, stick a 50 mil on it and stick it in the corner because I know that's how we're going to get that shot because I've done it a thousand times, right? As a, as a AD and in that production. And so that just drives the conversation forward. People can have, like, there are opportunities that can be created um, for people. But, you know, as a uh, wonderful executive producer, Christopher McNeely, who was the exec on the Mystery 101 movie um, and has turned into a marvelous friend of mine over the years, but I had multi I had a cold call with Christopher when I was still ADing. So I had done that episode of Charmed. Um, and out of that, I, I was able to access uh, an agent. And then out of my accessing the agent, you would do all these cold calls where you have no idea who you're connecting with. And, and you know, they do that as a favor to basically the agent. And um, when I met Christopher, it was like we connected brilliantly, right? Like we saw things, our pace of dialogue, like how we we jumped into these conversations and Christopher ultimately is the one that advocated for me with Hallmark in order to get the opportunity to direct that mystery 101. So I was doing Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. As life comes full circle, the last episode of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist season two that I was ADing was directed by Richard J. Lewis. Oh, wow. Oh, and um, he was super supportive of me jumping on phone calls and meeting with Hallmark in the middle of this, you know, episode in this world that we were, you know, you know, on fire together in. And Christopher was the one, you know, on the other end of that call who facilitated the calls with Hallmark and did all those things. And, you know, all, you know, three years later, the reason why I finally got access was because I met somebody who was like, I think you're cool. I think your skill set has got something. I'm willing to make this investment with you and give you an opportunity to dive in here. Um, let's see how this goes. And it went yeah. really well. Um, I, you know, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that like it clearly since 2021, you've got 12 titles, 10 of them are movies of the week. Most of those movies are for Hallmark. They clearly have decided you are more than capable and, and a professional and they keep hiring, having you back over and over again. And you've found a home there and like are making a name for yourself. Um, is it a situation with Hallmark now that now that we're in the Hallmark world and that's a great easy segue for us. Whereas, or, or is it still a Hallmark calls? We want you to direct a movie and you say yes. Or is this a like, Hey, which, which of these movies would you like to direct or that works in your calendar? Like which of those is it? 
I think it. I think it's a combination of a few different things. I think that Hallmark knows what, as a director who directs a lot for Hallmark, I think they know what we do well, mm-hmm. right? Each of their directors that that are in their roster or are people that work with them often, we all have different skills. We all bring something different to the way our storytelling is. And so I think on their side of things, they know the directors that do certain types of projects for them, uh, you know, and so those will often be the, the you know, the, will be the ones that are on the short list, essentially, you know, to, to, to move that way. And also having worked with certain executives like Kate Redinger, um, who um, was the Hallmark exec for Round and Round. Um, and so Kate and I have a working relationship. We've done a, a number of shows together. And so um, that sort of comedic, like that Round and Round tone, like that's something that, that uh, you know, I, we, we do well working yeah. together. So that movie is something that... Um, they wanted me on, Kate wanted me on, and, and that was something supported by Hallmark. So it happens that way. It also happens where like the Christopher McNeely's or, you know, like uh, executives that I've worked with on other shows, like that they'll make the request. So, you know, they'll, they'll put me in as the director that they want to kind of come along because either they know that the production end of things is going to be challenging on a production, right? And so they want somebody that's got a higher level production knowledge when it comes to how to navigate schedule and and those challenges, budgetary challenges, right? So when they know that we've worked together before and we have a strong partnership so we can problem solve together, then that's also, you know, how some of those projects come to me. How, how long did one episode of Zoe's take? So it depends on the episode but we were uh 10 days i think it was on the main unit with second unit pieces um so some of the dance and choreography right like that was that was real man like man oh man those guys worked hard holy cow but uh but also like stupid fun yeah it looked like Like, it was a fun show in my mind it's like the opposite of a hallmark movie where like (laughs) With Zoe's, there's like there's big elaborate perfect. things that yeah. you just have to get right, and so we'll take as much time yeah. as we need to make sure that this mm. like dance number. That's probably why it got canceled because it was so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it, it really, but that's where we have um, in a show like Zoe's, like to your point, um, we have a schedule. We're trying to fit the schedule, but if we have an issue, we have money to back up the issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In the world of the TV movie, if you have an issue, you just got to figure it well, out. That's, and that's what I was <laughs> like. You you talk about like the, filmmaking. You're you're making a movie of the week, and you have it, for Hallmark. You have eighty four minutes, right? And you're not the editor. You're the director. You're directing like round and round, which is maybe the best Hallmark movie I've ever seen. I, I've watched seven hundred yeah. of these. I've liked a couple <laughs> dozen. Round and Round may yeah. be the best one I've ever seen. And the reason is, is that it honors the history of time travel movies. It's really, really funny. It make it lands the plane in such a rewarding fashion that doesn't feel like a cop-out, doesn't feel... And all those things are story things, but it's your job to do that in 84 minutes. I mean, that's that's a lot to ask. You know, if you're making a movie that's going on the big screen and you're Chris Nolan and want to make it three hours long, you can make it three hours long. But... Do you ever, are, are you ever watching the finished product of your movie going, well, if they had just added this scene in that I shot, 
you you would understand and and these jokers in South Carolina wouldn't have a question that they're asking because it doesn't make any sense like how much yeah. of that burden do you put on yourself when you watch the movie that airs on Saturday night are you going okay they got the they got it or are you going man I wish this movie could have been 94 minutes instead of 84 minutes yeah. that's a lot for 15 yeah. days yeah it's a lot for 15 days I think there's an interesting mix that happens you know when you watch the you know, what, what is the final cut? So the editor puts it together. Then I go and I do the director's cut. So then I pull out the things that I think were a best performances on the floor. Is or there where a I director's think, you know, cut of round and round? There is. Oh boy. Ooh. I mean, is it, how much, how much longer is it? Um, it's, I think we were two and a half oh, minutes okay. longer because like, so here's the game, right? It's like I, you you cut something. I cut the I I try and preserve the things that I think are amazing, but I also understand that there will be finessing by the executives and by the network and stuff because everybody's got we, we you know we all come to the table with a slightly different viewpoint sometimes on things, and then at the end of the day, it's time, right? So we have to get it to time, and there's no opportunity to not be where you need to be. So um, I. Uh, I loved the cut of round and round. And, um, and I think that, you know, when I watched that movie, there's not a lot out of, we did a little bit more with the D and D dice, like where we hit that a little bit harder, like in the director's cut. Um, and the, uh, some of that stuff got a little bit trimmed, you know, when we, when we hit what the network version was like, and there's some pacing things like where you, we had an opportunity for action rather than just dialogue, you know, in a way where you've got a little bit more time, which I'm a big fan of actually seeing human beings like take information in and then make a decision with it. And often when you have too many words in the script, um, you have to cut all that, that out because people just want to preserve the words. And sometimes, you know, react, having the reaction in the time actually is more impactful, I think, for an audience watching. Um, the round and round movie I was really happy with, you know, when that came out. And the script, I mean, the at the end of the day, it's the script and the words, right? And then you can have the best script and words. And if you have writers that can't deliver the tone or the intention, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. You know, if you've got a, a, a movie like round and round, which is like so quippy and like thick and, and you know, the way that they went at that was ridiculously fun and it it like preserved everything and we have no time so you've got three takes right you need actors that are going to hit it if you're doing a fourth take something's really gone sideways uh -oh. um, but there are movies that when i see the final cut um you have to like remove your Because sometimes it like it's very crushing, soul crushing, right? When you see that a certain take was taken out, which you have an attachment to because you think that that was the performance that was so brilliant. And I, I think that actors probably feel the same way if they watch if they do watch themselves at all, you know, where they wonder why certain choices are being made. And and um, I had a, a director that I worked a lot with as an AD, and um, his word to me when I was moving to directing was. Um, when you put your cut in, never watch it again. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's, it's, it's soul killing, right? Because you have a vision for what it is that you think that you can make. And also, um, you know, a way that we storytell, you know, as the humans that we are, and we want the audience to have a certain 
um, reaction at a certain moment or be able to spray. And a lot of the times that stuff just goes away because of, of time. Um, so you have to, you, you have to, it's not that you don't care. It's like, you have to just separate yourself from, from how it is. And so then when you listen to like one of your podcasts or you listen to people talk about movies and you're like, if you only knew. <laughs> we get that a lot around here. If you can believe yeah. it. I, I got one more round around question. Sure. Um, there is a montage at the end of this film, and I don't want to give anything away. If you've not seen it and you're listening to the lovely Stacy and then want to go watch it, I would highly recommend it. There's a montage at the end of this movie which allows one character to realize just how in-depth this whole thing actually goes. Um, and as a director, like... You know, we always talk about the Shyamalan montage around here. Like, at the end of this movie, he's going to show you all the times throughout the movie where, or the Nolan montage. Like, Nolan does this too. And a lot of that, I would I would assume, I'm not a filmmaker, that that is editing, right? My question is, is you know a montage is coming when you're shooting the film. And so, when you're shooting these scenes, do you have in your head... Like, this is going to be in the montage later. Like, this moment is so important for us to get right because they're going to see it now, and then they're going to see it again and think of it differently. Or is that yeah. is that something that the editors just choose the best moments and you're just like, as long as, it, as long as it's the best moments, I don't really care. Yeah, that's interesting. So sometimes it's super, like, it's hyper-specific, right? Like, especially, like, if you're in the mystery world yes. of things because, the, you know, how the mystery movies move forward being based on the clues... Yeah. You know, like, so that gets hyper specific in a movie like Round and Round, where we kind of have, you know, often those moments were things that we knew that we would pull out a chunk like Chino, um, who's the editor, Chino Savas on this on Round and Round. Um, we knew that we would out of certain scenes be going back in and pulling out sections, but often on the floor when we're shooting, you know, like you see a certain look or you see a certain hesitation or you see that moment. And then that for me is like, I'm texting Chino going, you yeah. know, it's this take, it's this thing, <laughs> you know, pull out, flag that because that's amazing. Or I'm saying descripty, put a big note for Chino. Like that's, that's the moment we want to look for. And then, you know, to a, a wonderful editor's credit, they often find these like unique little moments that happen. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, as I'm saying cuts where it just, there's just something different about it, right? You just know that the audience is going to connect a little bit differently. So I would say that every movie is a little bit unique when it comes to how you do that. But um, typically the mysteries are very specific and you'll go back to grab something if you don't have it right on for whatever that little replay moment is, right? And in the rom-com kind of world or in the time travel kind of world, like, you know, it's done a little bit of a different way. Like a lot of those scenes, um, the poor actors, because we're doing the scene over and over again, right? It's the same camera movement. It's the same thing we're doing, but it's like, you know, we would cut and it'd be like, okay, now we're going to do it again, but you're going to say it's, we're moving to this line in this section of that, whatever. Let's just grab that quickly because, because you don't have yeah. the time yeah. You have 15 days, yeah, right? And you have four days with Rick Mahoffman and oh. you have like whatever production constraints are where you're literally like we don't even shoot the whole scene on the same day because i gotta i mean what yeah yeah we have not seen rick hoffman in one of these movies before just oh in suits God. and in just like this guy just I trying mean, to figure out ways to get, to him, to in get him in more movies yeah. i don't know how but we got so to, we have and no, Vic michaelis for that matter have no we, sway but we're gonna do everything yeah. we can we're just gonna keep saying their names basically we just want rounded the cast of round and around to just keep making movies because they make all of them that'd be great 
You direct them. We just do it. Just whatever. Make a mystery. Yeah. I don't care. Let's just do it all. Do it all. No, let's just do it. I love do it. it. Um, crime time really quickly. Luke McFarlane. Love Luke McFarlane. Excited, excited to see him do his thing. Uh, what can you tell us about that project that's coming out in a few weeks that I definitely knew that you directed before we started? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's like, well, first, like Luke and Lindy are just to Luke and I worked together before. And so we went into this project having, you know, having worked together before, which was fantastic. Um, you know, and they are two human beings that have ridiculously fun chemistry. And so, you know, it's it's um, it's a really strongly written product. Um, I think that it's it's got really solid clues. I think it feels, you know, fun where it needs to be feel fun. And I think it's serious where it needs to be serious. And uh, from an ensemble cast standpoint, um, loving it. It went to it. it did the TCAs yesterday to, uh, 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 you know, a rounding room and everybody's super excited for it to come out. And I'm, ex- you know, having, you know, been responsible, as you pointed out, for the, the you know, the death of Mystery 101. Of um, yes. <laughs> yes um, I, I am excited to actually be, you know, partially responsible for the creation of what I think is going to be a really fun mystery wheel that's, that's going to have a lot of right legs. So... So I think that's, that's fun. You know, it's this, uh, it's a great premise for the, for the project itself. Um, what I am allowed to tell you is that it's like a, uh, the, the, the line is a, uh, playful mystery, um, with a great sense of humor. Okay. Right. Um, so. And this is the same so writer I, that wrote uh, Murder in G Major, ooh. another a Haunted Harmony Mysteries who, that we also uh, thought we would like to see more of. So that's exciting, Good. too. That's exciting. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, I read a lot of scripts, right? Because as a director, you read a ton of scripts. And sometimes you read a project and you it you never know where it goes. <laughs> so you have a conversation and sometimes they're produced or not produced. You'll hear from them two years later or six months later you know, on it, but the Craig, like what he wrote that first read was, was fun. It was actually one where I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be, this is going to be fun. People are going to have fun with this. So, um, I love that. Yeah. I, I think you guys are going to like excited. it. That's good. And, and f- hopefully this finally puts to death, like Palah has been dragging her name through the mug yeah, for Chris years Palah, now. Every and time so he comes on this show, he's like, hopefully this puts Harding, into that. ruined yeah. mystery 101. He's the worst. He's the worst. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Uh, rapid fire really quickly. We each could ask you three questions are totally different. They can be about anything. Dan. Um, yeah. What, uh, I heard your dog barking in the background. What kind of dog do you have? Tell me about your dog. I doodle. Can I have the beast? The beast. The beast. Oh, wow. If you're watching on Philo, philo.tv slash DTH, we're about to see the beast. Unleash the beast. Quick, quick, quick. I'm cooking. Hi, this is, um, this is the Oh yeah, you know he's okay. Uh, <laughs> he is a beast. He's a good boy. He's a good boy. Oh my goodness! I love it. Fantastic. Um, Dogs of Hallmark. Yep. Hashtag. <laughs> Did you you worked on an Airbud movie? Um, uh, not only an Airbud movie, the sequel that went to theater, Brian, Golden, Receiver. Golden Receiver. Golden Receiver. How dare you? Uh, 
Thank you. For heaven's sake. What was uh what was Bud like in real life? <laughs> <laughs> he's everything you dreamed he'd be. I hear he's yeah. not as good a football player what? as the movie would lead Shut you to believe. Shut your mouth. Yeah, and I, I, I hear uh, the AD helped a lot there. The second one in yeah. particular. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, Tell me about uh, a place to eat in Vancouver that I just can't eat here that you love in Vancouver to eat. Oh, my God. Um, on and Chi. Like, Vietnamese, like, ridiculously delicious Vietnamese food. Um, Michelin recommended wow. opened in 1983. It's been in the same family and it is like, my wife's Vietnamese. So I, I, if we ever go to British Columbia, I've now got to go to this restaurant. So you have to on and she like, it's the, it, it literally, um, <laughs> it's definitely like where you want to go on a first date or something too. Cause you just got to get into the food in such an amazing way. It's, mm, it's dynamite. Wow. So great. Answer. Wow. I love I like so that so far. Yeah. Um, how far do you think you'd make it if you were a contestant on Survivor? <laughs> <laughs> oh God. I, I just, yeah, they would get rid of me. They, they, uh, they <laughs> say no more. She was a first AD for 20 years. She knows exactly what she's doing, what she wants and how to tell people to get it. Couldn't make it and you got to put her on Survivor. Yeah. That's like putting me on Survivor. Yeah. I would just be like, I quit. No. I'm yeah, out. this is ridiculous. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to say favorite director because I think there's a lot of, you can go a lot of ways with that, but your dream director, if you could work with or just talk to a director for an hour about the craft of filmmaking, who would you like to do do that with? Oh. Wow. That's hard. Or maybe just mm -hmm. a director that their films influenced you just wanting to be in the in, in the film industry or just that you loved. Basil Orman. Ba oh, okay. The Australian. There's there's like there is a creativeness and a quirkiness to what he does that I would just I just love to sit in production. Right? I'd love to sit in meetings and like listen to how they yeah. like <laughs> Can you imagine like Every round and round having Baz Luhrmann cuts in it <laughs> where it's like the, the donut spinning and you, the camera's attached to the donut as it's spinning to the ground. And then he just cuts quick to Rick Hoffman and he cuts to something else. That'd be wild. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Yeah. That, I'd love to be inside the, the brain, you know, like get, get an understanding of like some of that kind of stuff. It'd be so answer. fun. Uh, my last question. Have you seen the mighty ducks trilogy? <laughs> that that's not uh, the question. Uh, it's the setup to the question. Yeah, of course. Okay. Okay. No. Okay. Okay. Then that's the question. That is the question. Uh, hey, uh, Stacy. Before we let you go, a, a little thing we try to do each and every week is uh, to bring a little joy, and we do that hopefully through giving and encouraging other people to give. Uh, you've selected a charity for us to give some money to, as well as tell people about, and hopefully they'll join us in giving as well. What charity is that? So Covenant House is an organization that is uh, based in Vancouver, Canada, and they work with youth that um, live on the street or in, are coming out of foster care, where they work with them to make sure that they have the things that they need, right, for success. Um, and so whether that's food or education programs or access to things that are important for them. So, uh, so yeah, Covenant House, do it, Fantastic. people. Fantastic. The link will be in the show notes. We'll be donating. We hope you donate as well. Stacy. You are great. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Be sure back. to tune into Crime Time Freefall. 
uh, two weeks. Two, two weeks, weeks on the 23rd. Away. We're very much looking forward to that. Um, uh, we hope that you will come back uh, very soon. And until then, maybe we're the first to wish you a Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. Deck the Hallmarks of Bramble Jam podcast is produced by Aaron Shea. What? For more information on Deck the Hallmark, you can go to deckthehallmark.com. For more information on the Deck the Hallmark family, you can go to bramblejamplus.com. Deck the Hallmark is presented by Philo TV. For a free trial of Philo, go to philo.tv slash DTH. You're about to hear some ads that help keep the lights on here in the old studio. Thanks for listening or don't listen. It's really up to you at this point. It's at the end of the show. I mean, you're listening to me. Hi. But here they come. I promise they're coming. Yep. Here they are. Happy day.